What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to another special summer edition of The Feast. I'm Laura Carlson. So far on this series, we've sweated out the heat in Phoenix, Arizona with a historic cocktail or two. We've also explored the women behind that iconic summertime treat, Jello. Now we're going to blend those themes together, exploring the great New England craft beer scene, looking specifically at the fantastic women, both past and present, who have helped to write the next chapter of American brewing history. So throughout this past June and July, we went on our own little version of the great American road trip. Now, our road trip only lasted a few weeks. But what would happen if you took a permanent road trip? And more than that, took your family along for the ride? So before we get to our own episode, I want to tell you about a podcast that takes a look at exactly this topic. What happens when you give up a quote-unquote normal life and take your family on a road trip that doesn't end? You see, Rod and Jessica Sanchez thought they had it all. A comfortable home, comfortable jobs, and a comfortable routine. The American dream was theirs for the taking. But what if that dream didn't turn out to be their dream? You see, the more they worked, the less time they got to spend together or with their kids. Frustrated with the day-to-day routine of it all, they decided to sell everything quit their jobs, and travel the world as the jet-setting family. And now, you can listen to all their adventures on the Jet Setting Family Podcast. Perfect for a vacation season, it's a show exploring what it's like to get up and go, to upset the balance of life, and to spend time with the people you care about the most. And with two episodes up already, you can start traveling with them today. Listen to them on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Now, back to our own road trip. So as we traveled through New York, Massachusetts, Maine, even up until New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, we couldn't help noticing. Beer tourism is on. And it wasn't just us. Statistics show that the U.S. has more breweries now than ever before in its entire history. It's taken almost 100 years since the end of Prohibition, but in 2015, America finally hit and then quickly surpassed the historic high-water mark 
of breweries. Up until that year, the record number of breweries in the U.S. was somewhere around 4,100. And that high level mark was from way back in 1873. And with temperance on the rise in the late 19th century, as well as the 18th Amendment coming into effect in 1920, that is, the amendment that kick-started prohibition, American breweries suffered a serious, if not fatal, blow. It's taken almost 100 years for the brewing industry in North America to get back on its feet. But today, that industry isn't just standing up. It's practically flying. The current number of breweries in the U.S. is somewhere north of 5,000 and climbing every day. So it's fair to say... Beer is back on, and more people than ever are getting into the business. From new diplomas and certificates that offer postgraduate training in the science of brewing, to government lobbies that are lifting prohibition-era restrictions, now there are even entire tourism trails built on the back of beer. So while we were on our summer road trip, as we passed craft brewery after craft brewery in New England— We wanted to talk to someone at the front of this beer brigade. And as we tootled into Portland, Maine, one hot, late June day, there seemed no better place to sit, cool down with a cold one, and talk beer business than at Rising Tide Brewery. With the brewery launching back in 2010, the husband and wife team of Nathan and Heather Sanborn have built more than just a business— They're helping to build the next generation of Maine's beer makers and, of course, beer drinkers. And while Nathan, as director of brewing operations at Rising Tide, may know the secret recipes to their fantastic ales and lagers, it's Heather who has made some serious waves throughout Maine's brewing industry. Not only is she the former president of the Maine Brewers Guild— Heather currently spends her days serving in the Maine House of Representatives. So when she graciously agreed to talk to us on the Friday before a long holiday weekend, we were pretty jazzed about the opportunity. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Rising Tide Brewery was leaning pretty heavily into a Friday afternoon atmosphere when we drove up to the brewery. With a food truck serving fantastic lobster grilled cheeses in their parking lot, because, hey, you're in Maine, of course the grilled cheese has lobster in it. We grabbed a pint and sat on a picnic bench with Heather to talk the business of beer. Now, as you'll hear in the episode, we were recording this conversation outside on a particularly blustery and busy day at the brewery. So you'll get the full audio experience that we had as we chatted beer. 
From the wind, to the seagulls, to the music, to the backyard games played just over our shoulder in the brewery's parking lot. Heather turned out to have an encyclopedic knowledge of not only Maine's brewing industry in 2018, but the various laws and unique state history that have affected Maine brewers for the last 100 years or more. So as you listen to the interview, I'll drop in occasionally to give a few extra beer and brewing tidbits, just to flesh out what Heather and I were chatting about that June day. But let's get to business and beer. Let's head over to that parking lot in Portland. Sure. (laughs) My name is Heather Sanborn. I'm the director of business operations here at Rising Tide Brewing Company. And I also serve in our state legislature as a member of the House of Representatives. Heather is actually in the middle of her first term as a Maine politician. And the woman's got goals. But her role in state government is by no means her first John out as far as leadership is concerned. She previously served as president of the Maine Brewers Guild. It all started when, after she and Nathan got going with Rising Tide, they realized that according to Maine law, they actually couldn't charge for samples in their tasting room, which, for a small brewery just starting out, was killing their profits. So Heather joined the Guild, an organization dedicated to looking out for craft breweries' interests. The main Brewers Guild, yeah, yeah, that's our trade organization, and it's really grown and um, become a very powerful um, organization, and and um, we represent ninety point nine nine percent, ninety nine point nine nine percent of all of the barrels of beer that are brewed in the state of Maine, and. Um, we stick together and um, work on both marketing and um, legislative initiatives together. Um, and so as a result, we've been able to be very successful, all pulling in the same direction. And that's definitely something that really um, characterizes, I think, the whole American craft beer scene is that working together, um, that spirit of kind of collegiality, um, somebody coined the term um, cooperation or something like that, right? We're, we're cooperating and we're competing. And um, I think it's a, it's a fair um, assessment. Um, and I think the idea of building Maine's reputation as the home of fantastic quality beer, of a place where we're constantly driving and innovating um, things forward is something that we're all working on together and we're much stronger together doing that than we would be if we were just fighting against each other. Absolutely. Um, would you say Portland is kind of the, the home base of, of craft brewing in Maine? or it, It's not. You know, there's, there's an enormous concentration of brewers in Portland. I think there are something like 19... Um, brewers in the city of Portland, brewery licenses in the city of Portland, and it's it's only about 65,000 people in the city of Portland, so we have a lot. Um, it, but there's uh, 120 breweries and brewery licenses throughout the state of Maine, and um, they really are in every county in the state. There's uh, a brewery called First Mile Brewing Company that's all the way up in the northern crown of Maine. And- Just a quick note here. Heather really isn't kidding. First Mile Brewery is located in Fort Kent, Maine. Population, 3,900 people. The brewery is situated within literal spitting distance of the St. John River, a.k.a. the river that divides the U.S. from Canada. It's also spitting distance of the literal first mile. That is, the first mile of what would eventually become known as the U.S. highway system, at least as it was conceived back in 1926. Anyway, back to beer. And 
and um, and then there are breweries all the way in the southern tip in Kittery and everything in between out in um, Washington County which is sort of the easternmost region and then we've got them up in the mountains in the west so we really uh, cover the map in terms of uh, where there are breweries now um, throughout the state and some of those breweries really cater to the just their local um, you know 25 mile radius the locals come on Friday night come on Saturday afternoon it's a nice you know community gathering place they're selling their beer and growlers or otherwise just to locals and out the front door um, and then there are breweries like Allagash that are, you know, distributing throughout the country and, and outside of the country. Even. Yeah, I think we get them up in Toronto, yeah, I, think. I think. Yeah, you do. yeah. And, you know, and, and have an international reputation. You know, Allagash has just an incredible reputation nationwide um, and worldwide for the Belgian beers that they make. So, um, so we really have have the gamut and it's not just in Portland by any means. Yeah, and, and as far as, you know, I know in New York and I think Massachusetts has been doing, I'm just a little less familiar of, you know, having a, a like a, basically like a brewery and a winery trail that, you know, yeah. be, as part of the tourist trade, um, is similar things happening in Maine? We've had a Maine beer trail for a very long time, like maybe one of the first uh, beer tra- trails in the country actually. Um. So I did a bit of digging. And it's not clear exactly what the oldest actual beer trail specifically in the U.S. is, but Maine's has been going for about 10 years now. Back in 2009, the Maine Brewers Guild was able to feature 25 breweries on its list. Today, it's over 100. And it's been a brochure that, you know, has been updated and... um and uh, republished uh, every few months now as we've added more breweries to the trail. But um, yeah, we offer uh, that, um, allow folks to um, uh, sign off, get checked off that they have visited. And then if you accumulate enough stamps on your beer trail, then you get some swag if you send it in. Um, and our, our guild will send you a little prize in return. We're suckers for, like, beer passports and things like that. It is fun to, you know, check off everything on the list. It's a lot of fun. So we don't have any right now. Uh, They're being republished, but they'll be out soon. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, And then as far as, you know, getting to the topic of, like, women in brewing, like, have you seen more women get involved in, like, opening craft breweries, or have they always just been a presence anyway? Yeah, I think women have um, definitely played a key role in in the brewing history of Maine, Um, and it's... It's really a fantastic group of people um, who have opened breweries in Maine. And so um, it's been um, a very welcoming and, and a place where, you know, the gender issues that sometimes come up in a male-dominated um, industry have not been at the forefront, I don't think, in the main scene. Um, it's been very open and accepting throughout my eight or so years being part of the scene. And... Um, you know, I, I was president of the Maine Brewers Guild, elected by my peers as a woman, and um, that wasn't remarkable. It was just, it was just normal. <laughs> yeah, sense. you're just the best person for the job, yeah, and so why not? Exactly. Yeah. And, and so um, I, we have several board members um, who are women um, on our current board, including myself, and I just, um, I think we, we have set a tone and an expectation um, that the culture of beer in Maine is not misogynistic and is not like a really broy culture that um, feels uncomfortable to be around. And I think a lot of us, um, you know, follow through on that in terms of the culture and the tone that we set in our own breweries. 
and with the choices we make about the people we hire, um, we make a real concerted effort to make sure that we have women on our production floor as well. Um, I think having women in ownership makes it makes us think that way as well you know my husband and I own this brewery and um, we have since the very beginning talked a lot about making sure we don't just have women in sales roles or marketing roles but on the production floor and and we do we have fantastic brewers um, who are women um, and fantastic brewers who are men too so you know um, it's it's all about making sure that um, we're not stereotyping, you know, who can do the work, but actually hiring based on, um, you know, people's people's ability and their motivation and their and their personality and all of those things that they bring to the table. And it, it really makes for a much better working environment when um, there is that diversity. Yeah, I, and I'd love to know kind of what got you into beer. Um, yeah, so my husband was a home brewer. And um, I was mostly just a wine drinker and, you know, didn't really pay much attention to beer. Um, I would drink his beer, um, but it wasn't usually what I, what I was, was drinking. And um, so when our son was in first grade, I asked my husband, who was a stay-at-home dad at that point, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and... He, I, you know, I thought he might say he wanted to be an architect, go back to school. He might want to be an engineer. He, he sort of always um, had this affinity for um, both the sort of art and science of things. Um, so he's sort of a serial hobbyist. And um, beer kind of sits in that perfect intersection at, at the corner of art and science. And um, so his answer to the question was that he'd really like to open a small brewery. And I decided at that point I'd probably better learn all I could learn about beer. And so I set about doing that um, and started with the beers I knew I liked, um, which tended to be like German wheat beers. Um, I didn't have a taste for hops at the time and um, started from there and just kind of started exploring and working my way out of my comfort zone and finding things that I did enjoy about hops or finding hoppy beers that I enjoyed and and then developing my palate over the years and it's been eight and a half years since I started that adventure and I think I know a lot about beer now and um, certainly love hops now um, and uh, you know still drink wine from time to time as well. There's no reason they need to be mutually exclusive, no, right? I, I'm the exact same way. Like, I, I love a good beer, but I also really like a good wine. So, absolutely. And when did Rising Tide officially open? Yeah, so, we started, um, we officially sold our first beer in September of 2010. And so, in some ways, we're kind of the old folks um, in the scene, except that Maine has a really long history of brewing. And so, it goes all the way back to 1986. Um, when Geary's opened the, one of the first um, craft breweries on the entire East Coast um, in 1986. So. Craft beer these days seems like it's been around forever. But if you do drink craft beer, look at the established in or brewing since label on your favorite craft brew. Most of them don't date much earlier than Rising Tide, say 2010 or so. Fewer still stretch to the early aughts let alone date back to the 90s. But the D.L. Geary Brewing Company of Portland, Maine, dates from the early 80s. At the time, and this is almost unbelievable to think about now, but there were 13, that's it, 13 microbreweries 
in the entire U.S., 13 for the entire country. So it's pretty fair to call Geary's trailblazers. The brewery is, of course, still around and still making the pale ale that helped to kickstart an entire brewing revolution. We have this long storied kind of tradition in Maine of um, local beer um, from Geary's and Gritty's and Shipyard um, and uh, and then sort of a second wave of beer that came along um, in terms of ourselves and Maine Beer Company and Oxbow, which all started at roughly the same time, Baxter Brewing as well, that all started right around that 2010-2011 period. And then there was sort of another wave of, of folks who started a couple of years after us um, as well. So. Yeah, and were you kind of in there, kind of boiling the the wort and and kind of coming up with recipes and? Yeah, so I um I I had a full time job for the first year and a half that the brewery was operating. We started at a really really small scale, um, and so I continued doing my day job for a year and a half after we started. And on weekends, um, on Sunday afternoons, usually I would take my laptop and set it up next to our little hand bottle labeler. And um, I would watch, I think I watched the entire, like, Downton Abbey series while labeling bottles um, on our little hand bottle labeler. Those were 22-ounce bottles back then, and since then we've moved very far away from making 22-ounce bottles. Um, I saw your, like, production line, like, coming out. I think you're, you're either labeling or you're bottling. We're canning today. today. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we don't use bottles much at all anymore except for, for our barrel-aged beers. But 16-ounce uh, cans are where the market has gone over the years. We've been everything from 22-ounce uh, bottles to 12-ounce bottles to 12-ounce cans. And now everything's moving to 16-ounce cans, and you just have to kind of roll with it. So over the course of the last eight years, we've been in four major different packages and just just keep evolving. It also seems like the growler movement kind of like came up and then has kind of faded away as well, because it does seem to be a big problem on like kind of the on, on your end, on the brewery end, to kind of either be able to clean them or reuse them. Or... Yeah, so um, growlers serve a purpose. Uh... So very quick history of growlers here. So if you've been to a craft brewery, you've probably seen them. Big glass jugs, usually brown, waiting to be filled up with beer. So this tradition harkens back to the good old pre-prohibition days of American brewing. Before the glories of aluminum cans, bottle caps, the whole shebang of modern conveniences of grab-and-go beverage containers, if you wanted beer to drink at home, you basically needed to go to your local pub or your local brewery and get some to go, directly from the keg or the tap. And so how you were usually carrying this beer home was in a large bucket or pail. And so here's where the tall tale comes in with growlers. Legend has it that as folks would carry this bucket or pail of beer home with them, the carbonization or CO2 in the beer would get activated as it was swung along as you carried it home. It would then produce little gurglings or growling as you carried it. So when craft beer started getting going again in the States in the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, breweries started offering, well, not large pails, but basically these glass jugs called growlers for folks to take beer home, fresh from the tap. But recently, and you may also have noticed this, 
fewer and fewer breweries seem to be offering this quaint nod to grab-and-go beer-drinking days of yore. So it gives. Yeah, so um, growlers serve a purpose, um, and they work really well for folks, uh, for some folks, um, depending on how you drink beer, how you store a beer, how long, you know, ahead of time you want to plan your beer purchases, all of those kinds of things. But it's a really problematic package as well. It's really just a big old draft glass of beer with a cap on it. Um, and so, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily hold very well. Sometimes you get a good fill, you get it cold right away, it's going to taste great um, days or even a week later, um, but it's really not what it's meant for. It's really, you know, hey, I'm heading out to a picnic right now, I'm going to fill up my growlers and then bring them to the barbecue or the picnic or have them for dinner tonight, and that's, that's really where growlers shine. Um, and it's a great package because you don't have to throw anything away. You can just rinse it out, reuse it, and um, so there's something really um, attractive from an environmental standpoint about that. It also cuts down on our costs quite a bit because, um, you know, we're able to pour that draft beer and not have to pay for the can and the lid or the label or the other pieces that are actually quite expensive in our production process. Yeah. I'd love to know just maybe a little bit about, because you guys have a great lineup here. Um, what I particularly love is I'm always looking for the non, the sub like 7% beers, right? I mean, the sessions, things like that. And I just love to know, you know, what's the, the creative process in terms of, is there one that you, is your favorite, your go-to? Like how, what's the kind of ingredient recipe creation process like for Rising yeah, Tide? Yeah, so for Rising Tide, most of our recipes have sprung from the mind of my husband, Nathan. Um he sort of has this ability to conceive of, um, of like a set of flavors and then figure out how to play the ingredients so that they create that symphony that he's got in his head, that thing that he's imagining. You know, and it is a lot like music, right? It's a lot like saying, okay, I understand what sounds all of the different instruments can make and here's the piece of music that I want to compose. So it's like being a composer. Um, and so I, I really think of a lot of our recipes that way. Um, and then the really neat part that's happened over the last couple of years is that um, we run a, um, a program called the Sputnik Series, um, which is an opportunity for any of our, um, anybody who works at Rising Tide, including folks in the tasting room, um, you know, our sales and marketing staff, anybody, um, can brew pilot batches throughout the year, anytime. We put them on at the tasting room and then we collect feedback on those pilot batches. And if we get positive feedback, then your beer, your recipe can get scaled up to what we call the Sputnik series. Sputnik's our seven barrel fermenter, that's the nickname that we gave it. And um, we brew commercial scale you know, batches of these pilot beers that our um, staff has made the recipes and, and brewed the test batches for. And then if the Sputnik series um, release is really successful, then that beer could go into uh, a can and get a name and become a release uh, in the normal, you know, part of our commercial lineup. And so we have one beer that's graduated. Actually, we have two beers that have graduated out of that program um, and are no longer Sputnik beers, but are now have names in their own right. So Southwester is a sour IPA. Um, that we adore and that sells really, really well. And that was invented um, by our brewer, Missy, who is a just phenomenal addition to our staff and um, came up with this beer recipe. She wanted it to taste like grapefruit juice, and boy, does it. It's fantastic. doesn't have any grapefruit in it, 
all using hops. So like I said, that symphony, you can make it sound however you want using the right instruments. And so she's able to, to get us there. And it's a really popular beer. Um, and then we make another beer called Nikita, which is a Russian imperial stout and um, was also um, conceived of by um, one of our brewers in Brady. Um, so we're really proud of the fact that now, you know, eight years in, not all of our recipes are um, coming out of Nathan's imagination, but really empowering our staff to contribute to those as well. Wow. And as far as your staff, I'm just interested to know, because as kind of craft beer explodes on so many levels and now there are kind of um, accreditation programs, you know, diplomas and things like that. Are you finding a lot of staff is coming from kind of the home brewing background or are they coming and saying, I've got a diploma in in brewing or something like that? A lot of our staff honestly come to us with no brewing experience at all. Um, a lot of the folks who work in our production team um, started either in our tasting room or in somebody else's tasting room. Um, we have had people come to us from other craft breweries um, or other larger breweries as well. Um, and um, so for the most part, we've hired folks and, and then trained them. Um, and, you know, that's, that's awesome because you can really show them the way we do things um, when you do that. And, um, and we invest a lot in making sure that, that our staff um, you know, is, is safe all the time, but that is using great practices. Everything's sort of written down and, um, and very formalized um, in terms of how we do things. We take a very quality uh, forward approach here at Rising Tide. And so we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on um, making sure that we can train people from never having, you know, never knowing anything at all about beer all the way to making sure that they can adhere to the highest standards and um, make the same exact, you know, specifications time after time so that that Southwester always tastes just as good as the last batch did. Next five years plans for, for Rising Tide? It's so hard to know when you've changed so much in the last five years you know it's it's really hard to then project that forward to be really honest so what we're working on for 2018 is that we were able to um, take over a space next door to us where there used to be a distillery um, here and extend extend our outdoor patio and also build a, a special events room um, it's a really unique space with overhead doors that open there's like uh, nice acoustics in the space, but it's really kind of a black box as well where you can make it whatever you want it to be. It's a nice kind of blend of it's both decoration, storage, yeah. and space, right? Like yeah. it all kind of hits all three. Um, as far as, you know, this we, we had some of the lobster grilled cheese, which is phenomenal. Yeah. How long has the kind of food, I'm going to say like pairing, because it's kind of like synergy, right? Like inviting food trucks in. Yeah, so Before 2012, tasting rooms were really not allowed in the state of Maine. Um, because uh, the law said that you could um, give away your beer for free, samples of your beer for free, and only in conjunction with a tour that also had to be free. Uh, for obvious reasons, when you're really small, you really can't invite a bunch of people to come drink for free on your patio. And so tasting room culture really couldn't exist in Maine until we changed that law. So we did in 2012. And it's really been an explosion ever since. It really unleashed a huge um, revolution in brewing and the expansion. There were about 26 or so breweries in, operating in the state of Maine in 2012, and now there are about 120. Um, a lot of that can be attributed to that change in the law 
that opened up new opportunities to and just um, introduce people to your brand and invite them, as well as sell a lot of beer and for some rural breweries, maybe sell all of their beer uh, directly to consumers in that way. Heather um, is being exceptionally modest here. The law she's referring to, formerly known as LD-1889, fought to allow breweries to charge for samples and was one of the first modern attempts to repeal laws about state brewing that dated back to Prohibition or even before. Now, at the time, craft breweries in Maine barely numbered above 30. And this was 2011, not even 10 years ago. Because for anyone in Maine who was looking to open a brewery, you basically couldn't make any money at your brewery. As a brewer, you had to entirely depend on bars stocking and serving your beers. All you could do at your brewery was provide a free sample and maybe a free tour. It wasn't exactly a model that encouraged folks to hang out at your brewery. And this is where LD-1889 came into effect, fighting to allow breweries to charge for beers. Not just samples, but also the ability to serve and charge for, say, full pints or glasses of beer. Once breweries could start charging for serving their own beer at their own breweries, the modern craft beer tasting room was born, at least in the state of Maine. It meant people could now spend time at craft breweries, hang out and enjoy a leisurely pint. It also opened up a wealth of other opportunities for breweries, now that they could be places folks could hang out in. Which meant food, for example, was soon on the menu. Or at least, in Rising Tide's case, food trucks. But who exactly was spearheading that drive to get this now famous bill enacted? Well, the main Brewers Guild. And one, Heather Sanborn. For me, when we opened this location uh, in 2012, just before the law changed, we, we had, um, I had been out to San Diego that year and had seen the breweries that were partnered up with food trucks and that had basically the scene that you see here today in our, um, at our place, but also you, know, you see that same scene all across the state of Maine and across the Northeast now as well. Um, but I really thought that uh, food trucks were a perfect uh, partner for us. And I didn't want to be in the restaurant business at all. And so it was an opportunity for us to help other small businesses. And at least at our place, it's a completely uh, just a handshake agreement. No money changes hands with our food trucks. They show up. We help them. They help us. And um, some days it's they make a lot of money, I think, and other days it rains and no one is outside and they don't make any money. But um, but I think that's kind of the nature of, of the food truck business. And um, so I'm really excited that food trucks have flourished kind of right alongside tasting rooms. And, it, and they happen to coincide, I think, in terms of the, when the food truck movement and the, and the tasting room change happened was right at the same time. Um, and so some of the first food trucks in Portland, um, posted up here. Um, and we've had a rotation ever since, and we're kind of on to our third or fourth generation of food trucks in a lot of cases, because a lot of the food trucks have graduated to brick and mortar, and then new ones come along behind, and it's, it's fun to see the evolution season after season. 
it does seem to be a perfect synergy between the two, right? I mean, again, breweries don't necessarily want to be restaurants, and they, of course, want to have a nice, a nice beverage with your meal, and getting kind of licensed and whatnot can be a whole trick, so that's, it is perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, just kind of finishing up with the last two questions, as far as, I know you, 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 I can't even say you dabble in politics, but uh, you have a political side to you as yeah. well. Um, and as far as kind of laws in Maine, what you would like to see perhaps change to maybe encourage or develop the brewing industry in the state more, is there something maybe that you would maybe like to like to see develop from the legislative side? Yeah, you know, we, um, we're continuing to, like I said, try and strengthen the Maine brands. And I think there are initiatives that have been done in other states that really... Um, uh, put the, the the state marketing effort behind that, um, you know, New York craft beer is a great example. They have a very strong support from their state government in terms of um, linking their agriculture to their breweries and wineries and then marketing those really effectively across the country. And um, so I think there's opportunity there in the state of Maine. And there's always places where we could modernize and update um, our liquor laws. You know, Neil Dow, who was the father of Prohibition, is from Portland, Maine. Yeah, this is no exaggeration. Neil Dow is nationally recognized as the father of Prohibition or the father of Temperance. He also was the mayor of Portland way back in the mid-19th century, and became the first U.S. politician to get prohibition, or the banning of the sale of alcohol, approved as state law. What became known as the Maine Law went on the books in 1851, and led to at least 12 other U.S. states pledging so-called dry laws by 1855. Not that it was exactly what the people wanted, Folks in Portland famously rioted against Dow and his Maine law, leading to conflicts so brutal, the state legislature had no choice but to repeal the act in 1856. And so there's still more work to be done to uh, bring us um, forward all fully out of the conservative, you know, prohibitionist or neo-prohibitionist kind of laws um, but uh, we're doing pretty well, and I think it's just a matter of making sure that um, the state, you know, continues to recognize that we're really driving a huge amount of um, economic growth in um, sectors like agriculture, um, where those, uh, the more grains that are grown in Maine, the more we're going to use those grains. And um, so there's real synergies and opportunities um, with the beer industry, and I think getting state government behind those even more is, is going to be key. Yeah, I mean, that focus on just a local element to things, right? I think that's something that people want now, people are aware of, and being able to say, you know, not only brewed in Maine, but also using Maine ingredients. Absolutely. And and right now, there's not enough Maine ingredients to fill the needs by any means, you know, between needing to actually be able to process malts and process hops um, and, and grow sufficient quantities. Um, it's it's a, an initiative that we'll need to develop over time, but we have fantastic places to grow barley up in, in the county. Uh, they grow, it grows in rotation with potatoes, which is one of our you know traditional crops in the state of Maine. And um, so we just we just need more farmers planting that really high grade barley that we use um, that mall houses use, and then making sure we have the processing facilities and then the market for it um, with the brewers. So it's an exciting prospect in the next five to ten years. And then I mean, just again, kind of coming back to the 
women in brewing, is there something you'd like to see happen to either encourage or, or just recognize perhaps women who are interested in getting into the, the brewing industry? Or? Yeah, we've seen a resurgence of the Pink Booth Society, um, which is a, a really great organization that encourages women um, who are involved in, in making beer or um, otherwise make their livelihood from beer and um, fosters a number of scholarships um, for women to go do those certificate programs that you were talking about earlier, you know, pr- programs at Davis or at Siebel or, you know, different um, beer education schools around the country. So I think that's a fantastic organization. It's one we've partnered with um, in making a special beer um, that all the women on our staff uh, brewed together. And then we uh, donated a portion of the proceeds back to the Pink Boots Society. And I think we'll continue to see more energy in that in that arena. Um, I also serve on the uh, Brewers Association's Diversity Committee, and that Diversity Committee uh, is is a new committee of the Brewers Association last year, and uh, is really getting active in finding ways to encourage uh, both women and minorities, um, people of color, um, to uh, find more roles in in the brewing industry. I could have talked to Heather for probably eight more hours, both about Rising Tide's beer but also Maine's crazy brewing history. But she had thirsty customers, and given how hot the sun was that June day, she had roughly 8,000 patio umbrellas to set up. So we finished up our pints, and if you're curious what we had, I can personally recommend their Maine Island Trail Ale, which is a remarkably delicious session ale, not to mention their Daymark, brewed with Centennial and Columbus hops. So if you find yourself in Portland, I do recommend swinging by Rising Tide, which, if you're curious, does in fact come from that old adage, a rising tide lifts all boats, which is entirely too perfect a term to describe Heather and Nathan's work, not only in their own brewery, but in particular, Heather's work advocating for craft brewers throughout the state. Now, we aren't going to leave Maine entirely on the feast. Just a few days later, we stopped by another fantastic brewery on our road trip, Odd Alewives Brewery. And as much as Rising Tide may be in the heart of the big city, well, the big city of Maine, Odd Alewives couldn't be set in a more rural setting, smack dab in the middle of an old alpaca farm on Maine's coast. We'll be featuring that interview soon, but not before we head to Tuscany first to learn how the ancient Etruscan culture is informing modern Tuscan culinary practice. Plus, there will be singing. Lots of singing. Particularly about wine. That's all coming up this fall on The Feast. You won't want to miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to our show, and if you want all the latest updates, make sure to sign up for our newsletter, by heading to www.thefeastpodcast.org. There you can suggest topics for upcoming shows, or you can reach us on any of the socials. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. And if you have a minute, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a great way to help other folks find the show. That's all for us this time. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.